CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode of The Hash is sponsored by CypherTrace, a MasterCard company. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to The Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Coindesk TV. You're watching The Hash. I'm Zach Stewart. We got Jen Sinassi. We got Will Foxley. We're the regulars. And we have a special guest star, Danny Nelson. He of Scoops. We're here to get you up to speed on what's going on in the world of crypto news. And we're going to start off with a fresh piece from Danny. Danny, what's up? Yes. So uh, in the last week, I've been following the rise and fall of an effort to uh, by activist investors to take over uh, part of the Aragon Treasury. Aragon is a longstanding crypto project that focuses on building tools for DAOs. And it itself was moving toward becoming a DAO by moving control of its treasury to its community. Now, the community was really full of lots of activist investors who wanted changes at Aragon, and they started making noise about pursuing those changes, including through with uh, an investment fund behind them called ARCA. Well, Aragon didn't like that so much and decided basically to get rid of its governance and to move the DAO from a DAO that controls the organization into a grants-making DAO. So this is really a story about decentralization theater. And also, Will, as I think you noted on Twitter, it's, uh, it's another example of time being a flat circle. It really is, Danny. So back in 2021, I'm looking at the piece right now, actually, I reported on a very similar subject with Aragon. Uh, it was Aragon Association, the Aragon DAO. Uh, Aragon One, I believe, was one of the names of the entities. And they had a bunch of resignations, I believe about 12 staffers left those two entities due to a lack of financial transparency. Uh, a co-founder was also essentially forced out at the time. There was a lot of disruption. A lot of people thought that Aragon itself was going to shut down. It looked like they were probably just going to like sell off the IP to their voting software and the governance platforms they've been building. For those who don't follow Aragon, it has been around for quite a while. I think like most people uh, who have been having good like fingerprint in the space for a while know about Aragon. Not necessarily like a top project, but definitely a project that people are familiar with, has stuck around, and uh, has been developing some important like governance schemes for DAOs. But it's been hit twice now with like problems that we see over and over again with DAOs, which is some people have power, some people don't. There's money involved. Uh, you can't trust everybody. And at the end of the day, someone has to write the checks, and things start to fall apart. I'm not clear on like the uh, similarities between these two stories. I mean, they're two years apart, very different people involved, just similar entities. But I think it just, just goes to show that uh, DAOs have some problems. Jen, over to you. 
Yeah, I think this is just another example of the real world entity that is often attached to the DAO making decisions based on the organization's business plan, right? These DAOs are very slowly, progressively decentralizing. They have business goals to meet. Many of them have real businesses in the real world that sign real world contracts and operate just like the Aragon uh, Association acted here. Danny, I have a question for you though. Can you explain to us what this alleged 51% attack was that kicked off this whole thing? Well, there's a lot of room for debate here because the 51% attack in crypto specified is it focuses on this idea of taking over a network by taking over the node, taking over the validators and uh, being able to control because once you control 51% of the validators, you can control the history of transactions. What's happening here is not a 51% attack in that sense. It's really just an example of investors accumulating a governance token in order to vote and get their position through. And as far as I can tell, the project that they're focused on not being very happy with that turn of events. So I would argue that it's not a 51% attack. It's just an example of a DAO not liking what happens when you're a DAO, which is that there are lots of different opinions and sometimes people aren't going to agree with you. Uh, you know, the steps they took here, which is basically to say, we're no longer going to be a DAO. That's a, quite a drastic step, especially for a company, and I'm going to call it a company at this point, that is focused on building software for DAOs. All right, Danny, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw another question your way. So like, based on your reporting, what's animating this bad blood? Obviously, there's some group that has one vision, another group being labeled as activist investors that have another vision. What's the real root of what's going on here with this story? Yeah, so there are two factions, right? There's Aragon, the company slash team, and then there's the group that I've called the RFV Raiders. This is a risk-free value. What they basically do is they look for tokens that are trading below book value, which is the value of the token relative to the money in the treasury, basically like shares. Right now, Aragon has maybe $200 million in the bank. The token's trading around $2.90. Uh, it should maybe be trading more like $6 if you think of it in terms of book value. So the RFV raiders have accumulated a lot of these tokens and they want to hold a vote to conduct buybacks of the token in a way that would close that gap and make the token's price more rep uh, representative of the value of the treasury. And that is something that Aragon has done in the past. It's done buybacks before. Now, though, when the external group of investors are trying to be the impetus for moving this to uh, completion, Aragon is less uh, amenable to that position and has taken a really drastic measure here, I would say. Uh, attempted to speak to them repeatedly, but they haven't gone back to me. Well, we're going to set you free and get you back into those like halls, like Dow City Hall. I just imagine you lurking around mm. every corner, watching this play out in real time. In only, in only a crypto way. Anyway, that's it. Danny Nelson, thanks for being here. We'll talk to you later. All right, next story. Will, you got it. Wow, I miss the Dow uh, reporter halls. Those were fun times. Okay, let's go over to Three Years Capital and talk about our favorite villains on the timeline, Suzu and uh, Arthur Hayes involved here. I'm blanking on the third guy's name all of a sudden, so that's rough. Zach can help me out in a second. But got a new serve notice on Twitter. That would be Suzu has requested uh, uh, the ability to block Arthur Hayes from speaking to him in any way, shape, or form. Uh, this is according, basically occurred because of a bunch of tweets that Arthur Hayes has sent uh, to Suzu 
because Suzu owes him about $6 million. Jen, I'm going to throw the story over to you. This is like another escalation uh, between the OpenX guys and uh, all the creditors out there. And I love it. It's like dramatic. And I love the drama on the timeline right now. Obviously, there's a lot of people who want their money. But for us, like poor slobs who didn't get involved in any of this, we get to enjoy the battles online. Imagine we could get restraining orders against all these annoying people on Twitter. I think that would just be wonderful. I I didn't see all of the tweets that Arthur Hayes tweeted as part of this. I, I did see some of them. Some of them seemed a little bit aggressive, but apparently he's saying that, you know, he's owed in the in the millions of dollars and he's speaking for the people, you know. I think Arthur Hayes has a big voice. We were so used to hearing him so often in the media. He went quiet there when he had legal troubles. He's kind of creeping back into the narrative again. And I like it. The part of the story that I kind of zeroed in in is the judge said it is okay for this restraining order to be served to Arthur Hayes via his Twitter account. Now, we've been talking a lot about different legal documents being served in Discord and on Twitter. And I really feel like this is something that is creeping outside of the crypto anonymous pseudonymous world and is like creeping into other kind of legislative actions. And I think it's really interesting and just something that I could have never imagined. And so maybe we're going to see more and more orders and lawsuits being filed on Twitter and Discord and Facebook and Instagram. And that's going to be super strange. Zach? The man wants his money. He wants his $6 million. And these guys are out here trying to do like a reclamation project on an extremely tarnished brand. And a lot of people are complicit in helping them reinvent themselves for Act 2. Mm-hmm. Arthur Hayes is not having it. And he's standing up, I don't know, for his right to pop off shots on Twitter.com. I think this is a pretty funny development. Obviously, this is drama literally on the timeline. And we get to watch it unfold in pretty much real time. I don't know. This one seems like, I don't want to wade into this one. I don't really want to wade into this war, war of words. But it is pretty silly to me that the three AC guys are pursuing legal action here from basically what seems to be like, I don't know, like fairly run-of-the-mill crypto Twitter. It's just Twitter. Banter, just Twitter, guys. You know? just, Twitter. just Twitter. Just the Twitter fingers, you know? Popping well, off. It's just, it is what it is. Do you think that this could be... Suzu, you know, do you think he filed the restraining order as like a little PR stunt for OPNX? I mean, we're talking about it now. I I feel like that that could be kind of where the the wheels were turning. We fell to the ploy. We did it. We're talking about it. It's here. It's working. Yeah, it is Will's fault. Yeah. Okay. It's Kyle Davies. I don't know why I blanked on his name. It should be etched deeply in my mind because all the pain he's caused to crypto holders. Uh, but yeah, Kyle Davies and Suzu are the ones who are sort of in the uh, triangle. Arthur Hayes is trying to get his money back. And you know, I think, Zach, that there could be something else going on here besides just the Twitter fingers, right? Like Arthur Hayes has tweeted about this many, many times saying like, give me a date, give me a location, give me guys' address. I want my money back. Uh, he said that so many times. And it's been great Twitter content for sure. But there's got to be something going on behind the scenes. So yeah, we have this awesome tweet right here from Arthur Hayes, a, a wizard-clad PFP, uh, which is also excellent. I think there's something else going on here. I wonder where the creditor process is uh, for other members, right? So this is sort of what I'm thinking about here. Arthur Hayes is just one member of the creditor class that is owed money. I think there's about over $1 billion is owed by uh, Kyle Davies and Sue Zhu. There has to be some back and forth, especially since Kyle Davies and Suzu have not been very open uh, and transparent about 
their process for repaying people. They stopped talking to people. They got served on Twitter, I think, back in like August or so. There hasn't been a lot of communication. So I think that can lead to some like outbursts uh, on the Twitter timeline and probably like in messaging somewhere else. So I think there's something else going on. That's my last take on the subject. I can't wait to hear what it is one day. (laughs) Tweets revealed. Tweets revealed. Tweets revealed. (laughs) Hey, these bankruptcy proceedings, they take time, y'all. It's not immediate. It's just ugly and drawn out. And there's big money on the line. Anyway. Is identifying and mitigating crypto risk a challenge? Do you need help balancing compliance issues with the need to protect against fraud? CypherTrace, a MasterCard company, can help. They work with banks, governments, regulators, exchanges, and other crypto entities to identify risk, trace the movement of crypto funds, and help comply with global regulations. Visit CypherTrace.com today for more information. Should crypto be treated differently or similarly to existing asset classes? That's the big question right now in a House hearing. We have a rare joint hearing from two of the biggest committees dealing with this stuff. And that's kind of what they're debating, right? We had a bit of sparring in the opening part of this hearing. Let's hear it. We're going to go to Chairman McHenry. Let's hear it. The purpose here is to make law for us to give assurance to the marketplace and to consumers to close regulatory gaps Uh, to make sure that you have like-kind regulation of new things in our society and the potential they hold. Uh, We need to get this right, both for a couple of reasons. One is to uh, harness innovation and enable consumer protection. And the other is to ensure that the CFTC and the Securities and Exchange Commission will work together to ensure that consumers are protected, unlike what is currently happening. So that is Patrick McHenry. Republican in North Carolina, in response to Stephen Lynch, the Democrat of Massachusetts, saying that, hey, crypto should just comport with the existing things. And obviously, there appears to be a disagreement in terms of how to regulate this asset in the U.S. going forward. It comes as the SEC is really cracking down on a lot of projects and firms in the space. And it suggests that this is very much an open question. How do you regulate cryptocurrency in the U.S.? Let's toss it to Will. What do you think, man? This is the big idea, right? Should it work with existing securities and commodities regulation? Should it be something new entirely established by new legislation? McHenry arguing for the latter. We need new laws. Lynch arguing for the former. What's your thoughts? Yeah, lots of thoughts here. Uh, just to bring some clarity to the conversation for a second. It's, it's interesting. We have like the House Committee and the Agriculture Committee. The Agriculture Committee normally deals with things like commodities. And so that's why we're uh, bringing in this committee specifically. And they're working together because we have a bicameral house, right? Uh, we have Congress and we have the Senate and they work together to produce legislation, or I should say the House and the Senate makes Congress. So we have the legislation. And the reason they're going through this is because we do have like all these government agencies, the SEC, the CFTC, and others that are kind of determining what they think this market looks like in different ways. There's a lot of disagreement. There's a lot of fighting and bickering. We saw that at consensus, right? There's a lot of different people speaking to this fact on stage. There's a lot of confusion, even among government employees. And I think this is great that they're actually talking about this, but we're really getting to like the nut of the matter here, which is that don't have agreement on what that looks like. Uh, the Stephen Lynch, who's sort of heading up this whole committee, is saying that, hey, we already have clarity on the law. What we don't have is good enforcement. Uh, McHenry and some others, uh, like Barbara Walters from California, saying, 
we do not have clarity and we need new legislation. So it really comes down to how you see digital assets, whether that be Bitcoin, Ethereum, all the way over to like scam coins like Pepe, right? How do we see this entire market? And hopefully they're able to come up with some sort of solid framework. It's funny to look at this and then also look at what the IRS has done over 10 years ago now at this point. I think when 2014, the IRS first came out with like its own classification of how it saw digital assets. It just said it's property. It taxes property and taxes income if you have like mining rewards or something like that. So the IRS already kind of got it right. And you know, 10 years later, we're still waiting on Congress. We're still waiting on the SEC and the CFTC to figure out what they're doing. Jen, over to you. Did you call Pepe a scam coin? Yes. Well, 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 well. Coin. <laughs> I mean, kind of is. Go ahead, though. Okay, okay. You know, I read Representative Stephen Lynch's uh, quote here. The problem is not regulatory ambiguity, rather it's massive non-compliance. And I just think about what's happening in this industry, right? Someone who works in the industry is someone who reports on the industry. We hear about firms like Coinbase and Gemini and Library who have very publicly tried to work with regulators, tried to seek clarity where they didn't see clarity. You know, they have legal teams, things were unclear, things were ambiguous. They tried to get more information. And we saw them all get slapped with lawsuits. And so I think it is naive and almost a little bit blind to make these statements, but have all of this really hard evidence to point to that shows that, you know, maybe you think the rules are clear, but they are not applicable to the industry. And we've seen it time and time again. Zach? Yeah, I think that's what it boils down to, right? The non-compliance, that's the thing. Is it, is it willful non-compliance or is it right. simply unable to comply. And I think like the industry has long argued that these things don't fit neatly in a, a securities box, right? Like who, who is the entity that is going to produce public record for investors in the US to digest if it's you know run by a decentralized autonomous organization, if it's just a smart contract on Ethereum, right? So there are these sort of fringe cases that haven't fully been reckoned with. Um, you know, the existing regulatory structure is great at regulating points of trust, regulating companies that exist in the real world and can be brought into compliance with the law. But there's some stuff that is just like probably not, there, there's, no, there's no corresponding law like for which they can be brought into compliance to. And so this question of non-compliance, I think is a really sticking point. It is, it's like, well, the industry is saying, hey, we're trying to comply, like work with us here, people. We want some rules to comply with and we're just not getting those. So that I think is what's being argued here. Um, you know, it's funny because I think the Lynch statement is very much in accordance with what SEC Chair Gary Gensler said, right? Hey, most of these things are pretty much like securities. We can figure it out. Just give me some more money, expand my remit. We can make this work in a way that's com uh, that like comports with our existing compliance structure. Um, others aren't so sure that that's even possible. You know, Coinbase and others sort of championing that cause. So it's funny to see this conversation play out both in Congress, on the legislative side, on the administrative side, uh, through the SEC, in its fights with various participants in the industry. And I don't know, I don't, I just, I'm, I'm less and less optimistic that we're going to get that clear answer. Um, and I'm very curious to see what the outcome of all this is. If it's just going to be continued ambiguity, or if it's going to be a rule, and whether or not the industry is going to be able to abide by that rule is really this sort of the secondary question. But I give it to Jen for her thoughts. Well, when will we get there, Zach? This is like the first step in a long process to actually creating new legislation. It feels like there's hearing after hearing. And, you know, McHenry in the statement we listened to at the beginning of the segment said that he wants uh, 
more clear legislation so that we can protect consumers and we can continue to foster innovation. I just feel like this process is getting so, so drawn out. And the, the two areas that are suffering are consumers and employees. All the talent is leaving the U.S. They're going elsewhere. They're setting up shop elsewhere. They're setting up shop where there is clear crypto regulation. And the places they're setting up shop, they have clear crypto regulation. And, and sometimes in some of these places, that crypto regulation is, is quite strong, but at least it's clear. And so I hope the U.S. can see what's happening and get their ducks in a row and speed things up. But I am losing faith very quickly. Will, I'm giving you last word on this one. I got answers for you guys. I got a timeline. Stick around in two years. If you're still watching the show, I'm sure we will have some clarity for you guys. Okay, let's leave that and let's go talk about EY and some funny carbon credit scheme. Will always has something to say about carbon credits, but let's talk about carbon credits on blockchain. So EY has started an Ethereum-based platform for enterprises to track their carbon emissions and carbon credit traceability. The EY Ops chain ESG made the announcement at the firm's Global Blockchain Summit in London. Zach, I'm going to kick one, this one off to you. I feel like this is like a little bit of a blast from the past. Enterprise blockchain it is back, back in a big way. <laughs> we talked about, what was it, the Canton uh, initiative mm-hmm. yesterday. Now we're talking about carbon credits from EY. Yeah, the enterprise people never really went away. They just sort of, they get sort of buried in the, in the mania and the hype of the bull market. But they're, they're there, they're there. And then the mania and the hype like disappears and it's like, oh, they're back. And they're like, no, we've been there here the whole time. You just didn't care about us when you were trading Pepe coins. Like we're here. So anyway, actually, it is funny that they're doing it while Pepe coin is popping. But um, yeah, enterprise, man, enterprise, these ideas, they're not going away. Maybe they, were, maybe they were too early last time around. And maybe this is the cycle where it finally clicks. But I'm not holding my breath. We got to see if it's going to actually work this time around. Just the creation of this thing doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be used or employed by many firms who are looking to solve some of these problems. Uh, and that's something that I think we saw with the last cycle, right? With supply chain tracking, getting those consortiums off the ground proved really, really difficult. So maybe after three, four, five years, of continued advocacy for these technologies, it will work this time. I mean, the proof will be in the pudding and I got to throw it to Will for probably an even more bearish take than that, even (laughs) though I'm slightly optimistic that it might work this time. Slightly optimistic, I'll take that. Uh, So the first thing I thought about this is carbon credits are weird, but they seemingly do not go away. They've been talked about for quite a while. Uh, There seemed to be some sort of like technological and financial instrument to combat climate change. There's a lot of intersection with Bitcoin, a lot of intersection with cryptocurrency. A lot of Bitcoin miners actually have a lot of these crypto schemes, right? They're trying to like assign carbon credits and offsets for all like the renewable energy use and then like the non-renewable energy use and you can purchase them in order to like offset whatever you have uh, used that's based on like fossil fuels. I don't know. I don't really like it myself, but I think the point is they don't really go away. Like somehow they stick around because there are investors who really care about this stuff. So as long as there's a market, there's going to be a product. That's how I see these things. I almost see them as like separate from enterprise blockchain applications because enterprise blockchain is a really big topic. It's a big technological solution to something that I don't think really needs to be answered. Here in the carbon credit thing, like they do use enterprise solutions often, like this EY chain, but it's for like a very specific purpose. So I think it could stick around for that reason. 
That being said, EY has launched blockchain products in the past and they have sort of disappeared from the conversation. The one that I'm thinking off of the top of my head is Nightwatch or is that Nightfall? It was like a private blockchain solution that uh, EY built a few years ago. And I really haven't seen anything from it uh, since it launched about two years ago. And I'd love to be fact-checked. So if you do know anything about it, if you are like a big shill for EY blockchain solutions, hit me up on Twitter. But I think this could just be like in the dustbin of history pretty quickly unless they get some advocates on their side. Jen, to you. Yeah, it was interesting to see EY's name pop up the day after Deloitte, right? Both in the big four, both I'm sure have big ESG KPIs to meet. And, you know, maybe they're just in the ESG team is meeting with the innovation team and they're seeing how they can make things work together. Before we close off the show, Will, I want to know why you think carbon credits are weird. Uh, because it's like assigning money to someone for doing something good, but then that money is like transferred between people all the time without like anything, anything established on the rules around it. A lot of these credit, uh, these credit carbon schemes are built by like multitudes of different groups and then interchanged directly. And so there's not like really like one common standard for like what a carbon credit is. And then you get into the situation where people are just buying carbon credits to offset using non-renewables but they're still using a lot of fossil fuels. And I don't think it like actually like, fixes anything. I think it just is a sort of cop-out. But that's probably a different conversation. And I hope I get some flack on Twitter because it's be kind of fun to... You can get a restraining a order now if Ooh, you get some flack order. on Twitter. I don't know. We'll talk offline. Let's do that. All right. Let's do that. <laughs> Let's do that, guys. All right. That's it for the show today. The music is playing us out. Here comes the beat, y'all. I'm Zach Seward. We got Jen Sinassi, Will Foxley. We are The Hash. We had special guest star Danny Nelson. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye, everybody. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 